0: Revelation 2, verse 12. All right, we're going to talk today about the compromising church that Jesus deals with, the third one in Revelation 2, in a place called Pergamum. So Jesus speaking here says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name on it, written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So today we are going to look at the reality of what can be in a life, it can also be inside of a church, something that should not be there, but at times can be, and that is biblical compromise. Now, as we talk about compromise today, I'm not going to be talking about moments where we make some mistakes. When we talk about biblical compromise, we are talking about an ongoing reality. As the Bible talks about that and deals with that is so it's not we all wrestle with sin and and have hopefully much more victory than we have defeats. But at times when we have defeats, there's a compromise that's been made. But what Jesus is dealing with is not those kind of moments. He's dealing with an ongoing reality of allowing things to remain in our lives that are not good. And so this is a reference to a compromise that's not dealt with. Where something becomes over time tolerated and allowed to remain. Let me give an illustration. So, um, before we moved to Germany in 2004, we were living in South Fort Worth in a suburb there called Crowley, and we had uh, the only time in our life that we had had a house built, and it was kind of cool. But um, we were kind of at the very end of the very end of the street, and it was just wilderness and stuff. And so, eventually. What happens is, as you build houses like that, some critters get inside, because windows are open and all that kind of stuff, and they're kind of there, and so we had been in the house for just a little bit, not too long, and our kids were small, and I was back in the bedroom, and Holden came in at the time, and he didn't do his S's real well, as sometimes his kids do, and he came in and said, Mom says there's a piter in there by the fireplace, and so I said, well... I'm I I, I um, I'm much better living out here before all the homes got here. I've gotten used to spiders. I used to be like, oh, no, no, no spiders, but I, I can live with them now. Um, I don't want to hold them. My sons hold tarantulas in their hands and let them crawl on their head, but I I did not model that for my children to do that, the ones that do that. But I, back in the day, um, I told Holden, you go in there and you tell your mom to deal with the piter. Because Dad's not going to come in and deal with the piter. Well, a little bit later, he came back in and said, "Mom needs you to come in and deal with this." And so I had gone in, and we had some—we had a fireplace that was here, and on each side we had had some bookshelves that were put there, and we had um, all the kids' books on the lower shelf so that they could come up and they can grab them. And right over here, where the fireplace was, in the very bottom there, you had the baseboard, and then there was a little place where you could kind of get back underneath back there, and a black widow had built a nest right there. And so I'm looking at that, and I said, okay, Pam, good luck with that. I hope this turns out well. And so I decided, well, Pam, let's talk about this for a moment. Um, You know, we love nature. We love animals. We like insects. God created them. Let's just bring our kids over here, and let's let them see what a black widow looks like. And let's teach them that when they come up to get their books off the shelf, to be very careful. And we'll just let that remain there, undisturbed, having babies, and and we'll just make sure that the kids are okay. And so we talked with one another, and we thought, "Yeah, yeah, okay, let's do that. Let's just make sure that when they come over, they put their feet out like this, and they lean forward, and they, you know, can grab a book off or grab a VHS. That was when our parenting days, it was VHS movies, And, and so they could just get a movie off, and they could be very careful, and so that's what we decided. That's what you would do, right? That's actually not what we decided to do. So I went and got the longest spoon that I could get from the kitchen to get quickly there to knock the black widow down, and as soon as I knocked her down and pulled her out, I smushed her into the carpet, which probably wasn't a good thing, but at least she was dead. Now, we would never do that, and Pam and I actually didn't have that conversation about let's just teach our kids to be okay and to be very careful, because if we did that, that would be a compromising of parental smarts, whatever you want to call it to allow a black widow just to remain and just teach our kids to be okay. But I want to tell you this, folks, that Christians all over this country today are living like that. We are allowing things to come into our home and come into our families that are deeply, deeply dangerous. And what we have actually done is we have modeled for our kids, just be careful around satanic, evil, awful things that are devastating and can hurt you. Just operate allowing it to come into the family, just operate wisely. A church cannot do that. Families cannot do that. Our individual lives, we cannot compromise in that way. We must crush and get rid of the things that are destructive to our families. So as Jesus deals with the third church, again, about 60 years after he had ascended, he's been in heaven He comes back and this revelation is given to John. And John is recording and writing down the things that he's hearing Jesus say. He deals with this third church that is a biblical compromising church. Now there are aspects of this church that are really good. We'll see those in a moment. We just read them. But there were some grave things that this church was allowing to be a part of the body. And and the appearance is people were against this. But they weren't fighting hard enough to keep it outside of the church. And so two certain teachings were happening and taking place inside the church. So let's look at the first principle that I think is important for us to see this morning. And it's this one. It is the critical need for the church to embrace the greatest weapon. And the greatest weapon for the church is the word of God. And so look with me in the beginning of verse 12. So as with each of the churches, Jesus is addressing the messenger, the pastor, the leader. And so the word angel here is not referring to an angel that has got it created, that's got wings and flies around. Um, this is to the messenger of the church who's communicating and leading. So he says to the angel of the church in Pergamum, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. If you remember back at the end of Revelation 1, John looks and he sees Jesus the trumpet sounds, he hears this voice behind him, and he turns, and he sees Jesus walking among seven golden lampstands, which are the churches. And he describes aspects of who Jesus is. With each of the churches, the area that they are wrestling with Jesus is going to come with them with an aspect of his nature that they need. What does a compromising church need more than anything? It needs the sword of the spirit, the truth, the word of God to come again, to correct it. And so Jesus says here, I'm coming to speak to the leader, the messenger of the church of Pergamum and to the church of Pergamum. And I am the one I want to remind you, I'm the one who holds the word of God. The the sword here is an offensive weapon. It wasn't a defensive weapon. So in our faith, in our relationship with Christ, our greatest tool, our greatest weapon to deal with the lies of the culture, the lies of the enemy, with sin in our lives, is the Word of God. So as Jesus comes to this church that's wrestling with compromising doctrine, He comes to them with the sword of the Spirit or the Word of God. If leadership in a church decides that the word of God is not going to be an important thing or the pastor decides that the word of God should not drive the church and that is going to affect the church, not only in the short term, but it will affect the church in the long term. And everybody becomes affected by a decision to not hold the word of God high in the midst of a body. And so Jesus here gives great affirmation in his life. He, gives, he gave great affirmation when we read the gospels. This scripture is to be the weapon that we use. Jesus, if you remember in Luke 4, is tempted three times by Satan in the wilderness. And each time he answers Satan by how? By quoting scripture, using scripture as the sword to deal with that. And so for Jesus, the great tool, greatest tool that he used was the word of God. It wasn't performing miracles, though he performed miracles. His great weapon that he used in his life was the scripture. So there's some unique characteristics here about Jesus that are important, but there's one in particular that he gives here that John records for us, and that is the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I me mean, I want to remind us of this this morning. I know here at LifePoint, because the scripture is a big deal to us, this book here is important for us not just to be, it's not just a book. It's not to be a part of a play or just recorded in a journal, but these words who come from Him who is the Word of God, they are to become our very life. They are to become the direction and the foundation of our life and everything about our lives. And as Jesus goes through here and He begins to describe Himself, He is defining Himself. One of the great issues that's taking place in the Western church today is that there are far too many teachers and preachers and elders and leaders that are defining Jesus in and of their own ideas instead of explaining how Jesus defined himself. And there is a huge difference there. So so we don't get to make up what he's like. We just simply proclaim and explain what he has said about himself in the written text of Scripture. If, if we begin to ascribe things to, to him that aren't in the Bible and say certain things, then we have, we have stepped away from the truth. And so Jesus here, dealing with all seven churches, is defining himself. He is describing who he is, and that's where we must line up. And so with Pergamum, the church that compromises, he is describing himself as the one who has the words and has what is needed for them To move forward, this word "sharp two-edged sword" is and sword is mentioned seven times in the New Testament, from Luke two all the way to the end of uh, Revelation chapter nineteen. And it, uh, if you look in the Greek, what this literally means here, it means this: "him who possesses the very word of God." And so, not only is Jesus the Word, but He is the one who possesses the very words of God that were true. And he is not going to allow a church or a denomination just to, on end, to continue to do whatever it wants without him disciplining the church. Um, I don't have mine. I, I, I don't ever bring it up here with me. But in my backpack, I have this thing. It's about this big. And it um, you could hold it up to your face and it opens up and, and all this kind of stuff. And some of you probably have it in your hand now. Um, and our life is... Um, either fortunately or unfortunately, tied to this thing called a mobile device. Um, it's become, in many ways, our weapon. It's become our greatest companion. We touch it more than anything else. We look at it more than anything else. We hold it. We listen to it. We look at it. It educates us, it informs our worldview. And it is killing the young generation in our country. It's killing the students. The, new, the latest statistics are this. If your student, this is, these, these are just with students, teenagers. If your student spends less than one hour of screen time a day, then there is no detectable problems that they have in their life. If they spend three to five hours a day, there is a 30% increase in suicidal thoughts. That's just a fact across the thing. This is uh, the Pew Institute did this. Some real conservative places have done a number of studies on this. If your student is looking at their phone five or more hours a day, there is a 70% increase eventually in time of thoughts about suicide. You know what the average time a teenager spends on their phone in America today? Nine and a half hours. We are killing this younger generation. Social media as they are comparing their lives with other people. Um, and most of the time, let's just be honest, I watch our teenagers. They will take, they will take a picture of themselves and they'll post it. And it's about the eighth picture they've taken. It's not a really true picture of what they are doing in the moment. They are retaking retaking because it's got to look perfect. And I want to remind us today that these phones and these other things that we have, we hold in our hands more than we hold the scripture. They educate us. We look at them. We listen to them over and over again. The studies, the science is proving now that we have been in this for a while now. They are destroying the younger generation. And I, I don't know what we do about this, but. Um, Uh, I can only control my house and you got to control your house. But we need to do something to help limit the outside voices that are coming into our kids' lives that are full of lies. YouTube is not the place of truth. Instagram is not a place of truth. It's just shadowy pictures and fake things that aren't always truthful realities. And so I want to remind us today that one of the reasons compromise comes in is that we feed our flesh constantly all day long. Jesus said the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. And so in our lives, we've got to be careful, particularly with the younger generation. What are they feeding their flesh with? Are, they, are we encouraging them by allowing all this to feed their flesh more or are we doing everything that we can do to help them to feed Their spirit. This church, Pergamum, was dealing with allowing things to come in to be taught and for people to continue to just be okay with all of it. And so Jesus comes and says, listen, I've got the words and I'm the one with a sharp two-edged sword and I'm coming to you, the church that is compromising, and I'm going to deal with you with my weapon and I will come and I will war with you. Let's look at the second thing. We must, and there's some, there were some good things going on at the church in Pergamum. Now, let me just state this. There are many, and you've seen them. You've watched the news, and you've seen probably um, on some of the social media things and other platforms that there are churches all across this country, particularly in the month of June, who have allowed people to stand on platforms and churches that, by their very nature and what they promote have nothing to do with scripture and they're allowed to preach and to teach and give testimony and give children sermons and on and on it goes. There are still people in some of those places that are in some denominations that have walked away from the truth decades ago who do still hold fast to things that are true. Now we may wonder why have you stayed in a place like that that's doing that and and I think that's between them and the Lord. Sometimes God has asked some people to stay in dark places to continue to speak truth to that. But I believe that in Pergamum, that there was a core remnant of believers that were there that were holding true to Scripture. And so because they were holding true to Scripture, there were things happening within the church that were still good and right, though there was compromise that was happening and taking place. So look with me in verse 13. So Jesus says to them, I know where you dwell. Now look how strong, twice he's going to say this. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Antipas likely was a member of their church who had lost his life for his faith, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now if you were to go today, and I can just tell you this, I don't, know, I, don't know if, I don't know what it's like at your house, but I weekly, almost weekly, sometimes a couple of times weekly, get a mailer in my mailbox of a new church that's starting in Salina and Melissa and Anna and McKinney and in, in different play prosper in places just constantly. Because if you go to a church planning conference, this is what the church planning conference will teach those that come who want to plant churches. Um, this will be the predominant thing, location, location, and location. You've got to find a good location to plant your church. Now, right now, our area in Collin County is just thriving with people moving in. So there's, there's so much growth, and so a lot of church planters are saying, go to these cities, start a church there. Well, whoever told Paul, probably Paul, to start a church in Pergamum would have gone against every modern-day thinking about church planting. He started a church where Jesus himself says here, you read it, where Satan's throne was, at least in Asia Minor. That's where Paul, likely, Mysia was a place, you can read about it in Acts, that Paul went and, um, to a place called Mysia. Pergamon was in Mysia, so it's likely the Apostle Paul probably started this church in Pergamon. And so twice, the, the idea here is this was a wicked, evil place. Why was it was? And so why was it that that case? So Jesus says it's where Satan's throne is. And then Jesus said it's where Satan dwells. And I'll just state this. This was not an easy place to be a Christian. Can you imagine living in a place where Jesus himself said, Satan has set up his throne in the city in Asia Minor. And it's a place where Satan is dwelling. This phrase that says here, where he says, I know where you dwell. This word means Permanent residence, commitment to stay. There was a remnant of people in Pergamon that were being faithful to Jesus, though a lot of compromise and a lot of evil was happening toward the Christians in the city. But there's a core group of believers that were committed to stay, committed to the gospel, and committed to share it. And so they were not giving in. They were staying true. They were being a light in the city. They were exalting Jesus. They were holding strong to Christ's name. And so Jesus uses the phrase here, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And so I want to say this. I think we have to take Jesus at his word, do you not? Are we in agreement about that? Okay, so when Jesus says, I know where Satan's throne is, at least in Asia Minor, that's got to be a truthful statement. Now, one of the reasons why this is likely a truthful statement is is it is likely that Satan was predominantly working heavily there. We also know this, that Pergamon was the the capital of Asia Minor. Though Rome was in control of Asia Minor, the capital for about 250 years of Asia Minor was Pergamon. They had three temples in Pergamon to go and worship Caesar. And so all day long you would have people coming there. They had a temple that was there. Um, I put a lot of this information there yesterday. But they had a place um, where they believed that there was this healing that took place with this snake that they worshipped. And they had a temple in Pergamum of snakes. And you could go there. They weren't venomous venomous snakes, but you could go there and you could, if you needed healing, you would go into this temple. They would close the door and you would lie down and you would allow all night for snakes to crawl over you to bring healing to you. So this was a place that worshipped Caesar. This was a place um, of of snake and worship. Um, Zeus, there was a big altar to Zeus. Zeus. It was 100 square feet. It was 40 foot tall. And they would worship Zeus, the the ruler of the Roman gods. And so so this was a hard place to be a believer. It's the place where Jesus says Satan's throne was, where Satan dwells. And the Roman gods, the emperor worship, and the might of Rome was greatly exalted in Pergamum. And at some point in recent time, A church member in Pergamum by the name of Antipas was killed for his faith. So here's a man that was a model to those in the city and to the church. I would love for this to be called me about my life and probably you do as well. But Jesus calls this man his faithful witness. Jesus says Antipas was my faithful witness. His name Antipas means against all. And it seems like that that was exactly the way he lived his life. He was going to live against everything that was evil, not true. And he was going to live for Jesus. So when this letter would be read to them, they would think on their friend who had lost his life as they would have been eyewitnesses of what happened to him. He surely lived against his culture in Pergamum. Tertullian was a Christian writer in the second century who wrote words about how Antipas died. He wrote this, that he was put inside a bull that, a bull, uh, that was made of brass and they lit a fire underneath it and basic, basically the story goes that he was roasted to death. But whatever brought about it, he was not going to compromise and it cost him his life. So as Jesus comes with a sharp two-edged sword of the church at Pergamum who had some really good qualities about them connected to the remnant of people there. There was somebody who modeled what that looked like. His name was Antipas. Let me give you three affirming qualities of Pergamum that need to be a part of LifePoint's life. These are things that we need to embrace. They need to be a focus for us. The first thing that Jesus says there is, "You held, He said of them, You hold fast to my name. This word... Hold fast in the Greek word carries the idea of holding something out of loyalty. So the core remnant believers in Pergamum, though everything around them was just evil and wicked and satanic activity was everywhere in the city, there were those who remained strong. They remained uncompromising in their love for Jesus They loved his name and they wanted to continue to be identified to him. And so they held fast. They stayed loyal to the name of Jesus. The second quality that Jesus affirms is they did not deny faith in Jesus. And so just as he talked about Antipas, he was also talking about the remnant of the believers there that you hold fast to my name just like your faithful friend did who was a member of your church who didn't give in and he didn't compromise. So amidst a... Real satanic activity in Pergamum. There were some who stayed true to the gospel. And for some of them, their life cost them in death. But there was an unquenching thirst for people to continue to remain loyal to Jesus and to not deny their faith and to continue to follow him. And though they saw someone die, they did not deny and they didn't turn away and they did not cower. Here's the third quality. Um, that Jesus affirms about Pergamum that we need in our life is that they stayed strong in Satan's city. You look around at our world today and you just, you just, we shake our heads a lot and we're just surprised the things that are decided and, and things that are put into law and and enacted and what, what people are proclaiming and doing on the streets. And so they stayed strong the last part of 13 says that who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so they continued this core remnant of believers to stay focused on Jesus in spite of Satan's presence and the influence that was there. So again, I just repeat this. This was not a place where the Christian life was lived out in comfort. It was just not a place like that. Now, I want to say this before we move to the third point this morning. I thought about Antipas this week, and I thought about the core remnant believers in Pergamum living in a place where Jesus twice said Satan dwelled there and the influence of that. And I thought about how they stood strong in a powerful way. And I was reminded of what I think we need to hear and be reminded of this morning, and it's simply this. God's people have got to once again grow a backbone to stand hard and stand strong and upright for what's true. People in Pergamum had one. Living in a city, living in a place that affirmed so many satanic things, they stayed strong to teach the truth and stay connected to the truth. And the question for all of us comes as we talk about having a backbone, is will we be moldable and compliant to the culture or will we take a stand and live true to the scripture? Will we become soft or will we embrace the kind of courage that is necessary to, me, to remain true to biblical convictions that the Bible calls us to have? And as Christ followers, we are to have deep, strong, non compromising biblical convictions. We are not to cop out in silence at evil or what is satanic. We are to speak out where to stand strong. And if we ever have to give our life, then we are to give our life in that way. And I wonder today, what is the church in America going to do? What are we going to be? What is going to be our focus in the days ahead? Are we going to be like the remnant in Pergamum? That his evil is rampant and as Satan is doing his work of destruction. Will there be a backbone among God's people to stand strong In places like that. Let's look at the third thing. Let's look at the compromising of the core teachings of Jesus. So look with me, if you would, please, at 14 and 15. So Jesus has just affirmed the remnant, this core that is remaining true. So now in 14, he's going to deal with the compromise that's there. So he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, all over Asia Minor, we learn from the Apostle Paul that the reason he was eager to no longer go to Asia Minor anymore is that he had spent so much time in their cities that he literally could truthfully say this, that there wasn't a place in Asia Minor, he talks about this in Romans 15, I believe it is, 15 or 16, where he said, there's not a place anymore that I can't go where people have not heard about the gospel. So he was eager and desired to go to Rome to proclaim and to speak things in Rome and take the gospel some other place. And so there's a number of different places, churches, that Jesus could have picked in Asia Minor. But he chooses Pergamum as one of these to deal with what was happening and taking place. So again, some of them were holding to tight doctrine. But some of them were allowing, either outside the church for sure, but allowing what they were doing outside to drift and to speak of it inside the church at Pergamum. This is why it's absolutely critical for every church, for every denomination, that there must be consistent, good, biblical health by teaching right, true doctrine that the Bible affirms. A church cannot, a denomination cannot compromise theology. A church can have huge numbers and yet not have right doctrine. A church possible to have good practice but not have right teaching and doctrine. So it was likely both these indicators that were happening and taking place with Pergamum Stuff was happening outside the church that members were participating in and then it was being brought inside the church. So some weeks there, they were, they, 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 you may have heard of this before, it's called hypocrisy. You heard of that word? Where on Sunday they were gathering together in Pergamum and they were worshiping Jesus but during the week they were going to the snake temple and allowing snakes to crawl over them to get healing. They were Worshipping Jesus on Sunday, gathering in small groups in Bible studies, and going to one of the three temples where you would affirm that Caesar is Lord and make sacrifices there. Some people say, "We I'll worship Jesus on Sunday, but during the week, I'm going to read my daily horoscope. I'm going to listen to self-help podcasts where everything is mentioned, just myself and not anything else. Hey, if you're going to listen to stuff during the week, I know my voice soothes y'all's lives every Sunday. All of my sermons are online. Listen to me again. If you don't want to listen to me again, you get enough of me weekly. There are tremendous Bible teachers all over the world that have podcasts. Listen to them. A horoscope is not biblical. Neither is worship of the stars or any of that kind of stuff. Ground our lives in the truth of Jesus. That's what must be being poured into our lives. See, a compromise is just simply this. It's surrendering the truth for some kind of a lie. And all around in Pergamon, this was happening and taking place with people in the church. And sometimes I've been shocked by it. I shouldn't be shocked anymore anymore. But I'm still shocked at times where people will say things that are pagan practices and they want them to be a part of the practice of the local church. And you just want to turn your head and go, what? And you want to talk through that and you want to examine that with people, but we can't do that at all. So let me deal with these because I want to get to some other practical things. The teaching of Balaam, you may remember that. So there's a Moabite king named Balak. He was worried as Israel came up from Egypt. What had happened to the um, Ammonite people? What happened to the Moabite people? So he set out a false. He sought. He sought out a false prophet by the name of Balaam. This is in this story is in Numbers 22 through 25. And he wanted to curse the nation of Israel, Balaam, to do that, to protect his people. And so Balak went to Balaam and said, hey, will you curse this? And so um, he promised great wealth to Balaam and great promotion of who he was. And so four times, Balaam tries to curse the Israelites. Each time, the Lord turned the curse into blessings. So eventually, he sees that I can't do anything about that. So we learn this after the story. We learn this in Numbers 31, 26. That what he told ultimately when Balak said, okay, or Balaam said, listen, I, it, it's obviously not working, but here's, here's, what I, here's what I think you ought to do. If you'll have your women invite the men who are camped outside your city to come into the city to have food with them, invite them to eat. And as they eat the food, the sacrifice to the idols, they will build friendship and a relationship with the women there. And then you will be able to trip up God's people. And that's exactly what happened. And so in Numbers chapter 25, the men, they were camped at this place called Shidom, And it's always dangerous for men to have a lot of free time. Because when men are idle, it usually leads to some kind of selfish interest most often if they're not walking with God. And this is what happened. Numbers 25 bears it out. The men are idle. There's a sinful interest that's offered to them. So this invitation comes. They accept the invitation. They go into the city. They begin to sit down with the women inside these homes. They begin to eat the meat that the women are cooking that has been sacrificed to idols. And then they begin to commit sexual immorality. And it got so bad that God broke out a plague outside of Shittim, right there on the edge of the promised land, where one of the men brought one of the women he was having sex with inside the city to the camp. And a plague is breaking out. About 14,000 people die because of this plague. And Moses and, and others are pleading at the tent of meeting and they're crying out to God to remove the plague from the people. And as they're pleading with God, this man brings this woman into the camp and takes her into the tent. And a guy named Phineas, the son of Eleazar, goes into the tent and he takes a spear and he thrusts the spear through both of them, through the back of the man and into the woman because they were having sex inside the tent. And at that moment, the plague, like that, in a second, stopped. A little bit later, in Numbers 25, this is why Phineas is my favorite Old Testament character. God, from his very mouth, says this about Phineas. He was zealous for the honor of my name as much as I am zealous for the honor of my name. That's the teaching of Balaam. That was happening in the church of Pergamum. Not only was that happening in the church of Pergamum, there were also, um, in the first century, there was a group of people called the Nicolaitans. And they melded together sexual pleasure with the worship of things of the world. And Pergamum was tolerating this and allowing it to be inside the church. You see this throughout church history. In one of his first acts um, as emperor, um, Constantine... Uh, made it official with it, what's called the, in June of uh, 3, uh, 313 A.D. Um, he outlawed that it was no longer legal to persecute Christians anymore, and he allowed Christianity to be at least on par with the, all the other religions that were part of the Roman Empire. Since Nero in, in 64 A.D., who did a lot of killing of Christians and blaming of Christians, most of the emperors had persecuted Christians until... Um, Constantine um, did this. Well, over the next several centuries, um, there began to be, because the church didn't stay tied to Scripture, there began to be a blending in what eventually became the Roman Catholic Church of Christianity with pagan ideas and pagan practices. So by the time you get to the 5th and the 7th centuries, and the Catholic Church is dominating Europe, this is what... um, eventually happened. It led to some confusing and corrupt ecclesiologies in the 5th and 7th centuries. And this is what came out of that. They began to proclaim that Jesus was no longer the sole one that we are to lift high. His earthly mother Mary was also part of this process and so therefore she also needed to be exalted. What began to be taught in the Catholic Church in the 5th and through the 7th centuries was that Jesus' blood was not enough but you needed also to lean into the faith of the saints. Because Christ wasn't enough. His blood wasn't enough. His sacrifice wasn't enough. And so you needed to lean into the saints. The third thing that came during those days was faith in Christ alone was not enough for worship. You needed icons to look at to aid in your worship. It also came about during those days. Gee, I don't, you may not know this. But the reason the, church, the Catholic Church is the world's largest property owner on the planet today is... See, originally priests could marry, but somewhere along the way they began to recognize this. How do we get land and how do we grow the church? And so they outlawed priests not getting married. So most of the priests in a lot of these villages in Europe would be farmers. So their dad had land, their dad's dad had land, and and on and on had land. And so they were farmer priests. And so they forbid the priests to marry, and so the priests, they forced the priests Therefore, since you don't have sons, you're not married, you don't have sons, to pass the land down and the farm down, now that you're alone and you're single, you are to give the land to the Catholic Church. And that's how, in the 5th through 7th centuries, the Catholic Church became the world's largest landowner in the world by instituting that. None of those principles are connected to the Scripture. This is why it's important, folks that we never lose our tie to scripture, that we don't ever. And again, this is not my counsel. Jesus is saying that here. He's saying to the church in Pergamum, you cannot do this. You cannot allow these kind of things that have nothing to do with Christianity to be a part. So do not compromise the core teachings of Jesus. Now, let me deal with one. So, So I thought this week about how do do I bring a practical aspect to this, to our lives this morning so that we can understand how do we relate to the teaching of Balaam, the teaching of the Nicolaitans in 2023. And so let me just share some things um, with you here. Marriage in America has been a disaster for several decades now, and it's not getting any better. And let me share some things that are happening in this There's an idea that's been around for a long time, but it it is dominating the younger generation, even the ones that are connected to the church, and it's dominating our nation. We used to call it living living together. The current term is called cohabitation. It's where people who aren't married are living together outside of the covenant of marriage. And let me give you some statistics of this because it is dominating... Churches, This thinking and being allowed in. Again, this is not to criticize somebody that you know or even somebody here today. This is just to state some facts so that we can understand what Jesus is talking about here. U.S. adults currently married has declined in recent decades. It used to be 58% in 1995 to only 53% of the adults in our country have been married. Now, over the same period, the adults who are living with an unmarried partner has risen to the same percentage. And so it's now flipped that there's more people now who are unmarried living together right now than are people who are actually married and are living together in our country. There's some interesting things about those who live together outside of marriage. There's not, interestingly, these are scientific studies There's not one instance of looking at this where there's anything positive connected to living outside of a covenant relationship. 78% of those who are ages 18 to 29 in our country today say it's acceptable for an unmarried couple to live together, whether they're connected to church or not connected to church. Half, listen... Yeah, I've got a lot of stuff here. Let me make sure I, 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 I give some of the key ones. So here's the reality. It's still right at 50% of all marriages right now in a divorce. The newest statistic that we've been able to come up with and look at is that 50% of all new marriages today begin with cohabitation. Half of them do. And if you'll talk to churches, mega churches, we have singles ministry. They are dealing with this in an unprecedented way of people who are coming to church. The Centers for Disease Control, people, people think, well, if I live together, we can kind of learn about marriage and all this kind of stuff. Well, um, the st- latest statistics are, if you live together before you're married, 80% of those marriages end in divorce, 80% of them. So, so it's not helping, it's actually hurting things. Couples that cohabitated before marriage were found to have less positive interactions Um, learning how to um, resolve things. Um, It also talked about what would their future, studies show that future marriage, again, as I said a while ago, doesn't um, make it. Um, Studies show that that if if people cohabitate together, it's associated with higher divorce risk, anywhere from, one study said 33% more, to all the way up to 151% of risk of increase of divorce interesting we talk about mental health connected to this in the fall of the family annual rates of depression among those who cohabit with one another outside of marriage are three times higher in those than married adults women in cohabiting relationships are twice as likely to suffer physical abuse in those relationships they are nine times more likely to be killed Uh, their spouse, or not their spouse, their live-in partner that they are with. The bottom line is this. These ideas that Pergamon was dealing with, we are dealing with them here in the church today. And we'll continue to do it. And again, I want to go back to, this this is not a statement to criticize anybody. It's a statement to call the church to have a backbone again. God said, Mary, He instituted this, the first humans. He was the instigator of this. And and if we're going to follow God and walk with God, the church has to stand on the side that God stands in. And yeah, we want to love people who are in places like that. And I'll marry anybody this afternoon who's ready to get it right. Right. Instead of saying, well, we're going to do that down the road. No, do it right now. Let's get this right. And You want to walk with God. Let's do this biblically. And if you're not going to do it and you're going to wait, then you need to move out. And do it biblically. The way God has designed this. And the bottom line in all of this is Satan still is a liar. And he will continue to do this. And so though our culture wants to make cohabitation and casual sex seem normative and healthy, the statistics show, whether God's in the equation or not in the equation, the statistics show that none of this is good for people. There's a reason God instituted marriage, and it's important. And God's design for purity before marriage and fidelity and commitment in marriage is still the best plan. Would you agree? So it doesn't mean that it's all over for somebody if they're in that place. But this is just a statement to say this, that we as a church want to call people to biblical standard. And we as a church must call people in the church to the biblical standard. And so we see this drift happening. So what happens with a compromising heart? What needs to happen and take place? Well, as with any sin repentance so look at 16 so jesus dealing with pergamum and the sexual immorality that they were allowing to be inside the church he says here's the deal church you've got to repent yes the individuals need to repent but the church needed to repent this was written to the leader of the church at pergamum they were they were to repent of allowing this and he says if you're not going to do it I'm going to come to you. And these are strong words. Listen to these words. Jesus says, I am going to war against you. Because I I love the family. I love purity and holiness and righteousness because it's good for your kids. It's good for the family. It's good for cities. It's good for churches to have sexual purity a part of the church. But there's a critical work and a critical need that has to happen in a compromising heart, and in a compromising church in this way, and it's called repentance. Repentance is a changing of the mind and acknowledging what has been done is wrong. And so Jesus says to them, you must repent. And I know in our day and time, folks, Life Point, that tolerance is now king in our culture. But tolerance is not to have a place in the church. It's just not. We are to be people of the Bible. James wrote these words in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So why is Jesus coming at certain denominations in the West? And waging war and has been waging war with them for a long time. It's because they won't repent of the immorality that they allowed to be a part of the church. And so Jesus says, you've got to repent. Secondly, he says, if you don't do that, you're going to reap the consequences. And that's me coming with my sword to war against you. I said some things a few weeks ago and I want to highlight this reality of what Jesus has been doing in the mainline denominations in America for quite a while now. So if you would, listen closely, and we're finishing up here in a moment, in a dope moment, we'll finish up. But we will. During the pandemic, many churches closed and never reopened. They were dying anyway, anyway. And They didn't meet for 18 months, and when it came time to meet again, nobody showed up again, and there was not enough money to pay for bills, and so there's empty buildings. Many pastors quit during that time as well and, and moved on to whatever they moved on to. But the question came, why? Why, why is it the, that the case? And also, why are some of the mainline denominations dying out? Well, those that have drifted toward a heavy liberal theology and doctrinal drift are just absolutely dying on the vine. And Jesus has come and it's clear and he's waged war against them with the word. What happened is that there is not a single liberal denomination in America today that's growing. Not a single one. And they are woke and inviting every, anybody and everybody to come into the church, live how you want to live, do whatever you want to do. We will love you. Not a single one of them are growing. As a matter of fact, not a single one of them have a decline that's less than 10%. Some of them, it is astronomical, the amount of people that they are losing. So let me give you some statistics so you can kind of see what Jesus was talking about with Pergamum and what we were seeing in America today today. The United Methodist Church from the year 2000 to the year 2016, this is where this study was done, they are down 16%, and I guarantee you it's dropped more than that because of what has happened with the Methodist Church. The American Baptist Church USA, they had a membership in the year 2000 of 1,436,909. They are down 19.31%. The Episcopal Church, in those 16 years, is down 25.21%. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America is down 30.47% in their attendance. The United Church of Christ is down 36.08% in attendance. The Presbyterian Church USA, that's the liberal branch of the Presbyterians, they are down 41%. The Christian church, which is called Disciples of Christ, which is what TCU is. Don't send your kids to TCU, please. All they're going to hear is the Bible is not true. God's not true. Do whatever you want to do. As a matter of fact, TCU this semester, Mark shared an article with me um, this week. TCU is offering a course in all of this craziness that's permeating our culture today. You're going to try to make it part of their core curriculum for everybody to be a part of. The disciples of Christ are down 49.88%. Now, if you look at the main nine denominations in in America today that hold to Jesus is the only way, they are growing. The right Presbyterians in America, they grew 22% during that same time frame. The Assemblies of God grew 11%. The Evangelical Free Church of America grew 23%. Southern Baptists grew 2%. Um, there's a group called the Anglican Church of North America. They broke off from the Episcopals and formed their own denomination. Um, they, are, they, they did that in 2009, and they are really growing, and they've gone back tied um, to the Scripture. Well, what's happened? Why? Why is this the case? And I know I talk about this all the time, but I think it's important for us to see practical, practicality to what Jesus says here. Each of these denominations early on in the, in the 20th century, in the early 1900s, fought against the conservatives, all seven of those fought against the conservatives in their denomination and drove them out. And the conservatives either quit going to church or they joined other denominations that were conservative like them. And so what's happened in these mainline denominations because of this liberal shift is that people got older and there were no children and so... So those older people are dying and you have no young families a part of those. And so that's part of that. But it's, that's not the only reason. They also found this, the studies have shown, is that these mainline denominations talked orthodoxy, talked right doctrine, but never practiced it for most of the 20th century. But when you get into the 21st century, there was a grave shift about the year 2000 uh, when things changed into the 21st century were allowing of of much more liberal ideas to be a part of the church. And so basically they said, this is what we believe, but they practiced something completely different. And so people left those denominations. Thirdly, listen to this. Listen to this. Are you listening? Here's the third common thing with all seven of these mainline denominations that are just dying. They all began... To allow homosexuality to be a part of the leadership in the church and among the members, the disciples of Christ in 2013 endorsed homosexual leadership. 2014, the Presbyterians did it. In 2009, the Evangelical Church in America voted to allow homosexual ministers to be ordained. In 1985, the United Church of Christ passed a resolution calling on their churches to be more open and affirming regarding homosexuality. And in 2005, were no longer uh, they, were, they, they told their ministers, don't even ask the gender of the other person of the weddings that are going to be performed in your churches. So that, that became a dominant thing. Fourth thing. Because you drift from the scripture, what becomes center? Man becomes the center. So if you've got preaching on a Sunday morning that's more man centered, feeling centered. And so there was much affirmation uh, during those times of, of human invention and things of this nature, and it became more important than historical Christianity. And so they began, these denominations began to teach new, enlightened ideas about things instead of teaching the biblical texts. So what's left? Well, what's left in 2023 now is what we see all around us. It's called a deconstructionist movement where people are tearing down what they had been taught as kids. Or it's called progressive Christianity. And this is what you'll hear. This is the leftovers of that and this is the fruit of all of that. This is the language of deconstructionists and progressive Christians. Well, is Jesus really the way? Do we have to be so strict in that kind of language? And can't we be more inclusive about other beliefs as Christians? You will hear this. Is the Bible really authoritative? Can we really trust it? You'll hear this coming out much so. Is it really one man, one woman as the definition of marriage? I think we can call it something else. This is dominating and part of that deconstruction progressive Christianity. Can't I go ahead and just have sex and sleep in the same bed with someone because I'm intending to marry them after all in the days ahead? And the bottom line is this, church, is the mainline denominations that are embracing a sexual ethic like Pergamum was that's not in line with the teaching of the Bible, whether it is homosexual sin or heterosexual sin, they are in the gravest decline. And the churches that are growing in America today are those who are calling people to a biblical view of human sexuality the way God designed it, and they're growing. Now hear this. We cannot compromise on this issue. And I know somebody will say, and I hope nobody in here, this is in your head. Well, we've got to be loving. Well, of course we do. But we've got to have a backbone. And we've got to stand in the truth. So these denominations, Jesus is waging war against them and they're dying. He's using the sword. Well, what's the critical need then? Well, what it's always been. Look at 17. We've got to listen to what the Spirit says. The critical need for the church that compromises is to once again hear what the Spirit has to say. So Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What the Spirit says matters most, absolutely critical. So once again... There's this calling that we would examine the voice of the Spirit and what is just said and recognize that the Holy Spirit is speaking to the church. So today we are asking, what what Spirit are you saying to us about Pergamum that's applicable for us? What do we need to do? And the idea is simply this, is that compromise begins in the life of a believer, in a denomination, in a church, in a family, when we quit listening to what Jesus has said and what the Spirit is saying. When we don't keep our ear tuned to the scripture, we will drift. And the spirit is saying to the spirit of Pergamum, that's this liberal aspect towards sexuality. sexuality. The spirit is saying, you be separate than the culture. You be different than the culture. You don't buy into that teaching of the world. Lastly. The call from Jesus to all seven of these churches is walk with me, know me, walk in holiness, because the faithful who persevere, they're the ones who conquer, and they're the ones who get rewards. So look at the last part of 17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We want to be conquerors, not cowards. We want to be those who walk with God and and don't buy into the cultural lie. Because in the places where Satan dwells and Satan works and he is at work, he's going to lie and he's going to lie and he's going to lie and he's going to say, this is okay, this is okay, church, you need to soften your stance. And Jesus says, no, don't soften your stance because, because I'm gonna do something about those that soften their stance. And so we wanna have the heart of a conqueror. Conquerors live by making choices to stay on the pathway of walking in truth. And when they do, they have this great promise that we will go to heaven and I can't wait. Can you not know, wait? I, I, I like being here with you, but I, if I had my druthers, Love to be in the presence of King Jesus right now. That would be pretty amazing. But I'm like Paul in Philippians three. If I if I have to stay, that's great. That means I I continue to work and I love people and I be in, and I'm in relationship with people. But if it means that I'm not here, that I'm with Him, either way, I get Jesus. But Paul here in Jesus or Jesus here is is reminding. He says this. Listen. To the one who conquers, who walks and perseveres and doesn't compromise, I'm going to give some of the hidden manna. I don't know what the hidden manna is. It's hidden. Nobody knows. We know about manna when it was here. Jesus said that he was the bread that came down from heaven, not like the manna that the fathers ate. But the fathers ate manna in the wilderness that was pretty awesome, had a little honey taste to it coriander seed and it's sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness but when we get to heaven there's going to be some hidden manna and we don't really know what that is but I do know this that that, that the greater manna is still Jesus and he is the reason when we get to heaven that we will continue to be sustained and he will continue to be the sustenance of our eternal existence and then Believers are going to, conquerors are going to get a white stone. Now, that may not sound like a great reward. <laughs> Jesus is like, I got a white stone for you. Hello, here you go. Here's your white stone. Well, what does that mean? We kind of have to go back to the first century and kind of take a look at that. Some people think it's a diamond showing value and something precious in nature. I, I, don't, I don't agree with that interpretation. Now, back in those days, there were four things that happened with white stones. Uh, In a jury, the judge would come out with a black stone and a white stone. If you were innocent, they would roll out the white stone. If you were guilty, they'd roll out the black stone. So that was one. So Jesus, as judge, probably at the end of time, he he may roll out a stone and and so could do that. Also, people got white stones back in the first century who were champions in the Olympics. And so they, they would get a stone called a tessera. And it allowed them to any of the gladiator games, anywhere within the Roman Empire, they could show their tessera, and they could get in as a free spectator to any of the events over the Roman Empire. And so it allowed people access into the stadium. So some people believe that's what Jesus was talking about here, that uh, this white stone allows that. The fourth one was... If you were a gladiator that won all your things and you survived everything and it was time no longer for you to fight anymore, you would be given a white stone that had the word spectacus on it. Or it would have the letters S and P on it and it meant this, a person's valor has been proven beyond all doubt. And then there was a fourth one and this is where I lean. That if you were invited to a guest in the Roman Empire during those days there was a white stone that was placed in your seat. And underneath the white stone, the person who had invited you to the meal that night would write a little note. And so when you would sit down on the table, you would take the white stone and you would turn it over and there would be a message to each person that had been invited to be a part of the meal. And I think that's probably the idea. Because Jesus says here, when we get to heaven... There's going to be a name that we're going to be given that nobody knows and it's going to be on this white stone and he's going to give the stone and he's going to give the name. I have had to live with the name Doke my whole life. Explanation after explanation after explanation, mispronouncing after mispronouncing. Here my parents got to name me. I've knocked them on top of their head a few times um, about that. Not really, but verbally I have, yes. When I get to heaven, Jesus says he's going to give me a stone that only that has my name, that only he and I know that name. Can you fathom how awesome that is? That each person in this room who has a relationship with Jesus today, you will have a special name known only to the one that Jesus gives it. And so if you're here today and you... Say, oh, I'm not really special. Yeah, you are. If you are his, he's going to give you a name that you and he are going to know. He gets to name us when we get to heaven. So the call upon us as we finish is that you and I would, would be like the core in Pergamum, not giving in Staying true, being a conqueror, knowing this, that we have the hope of heaven. The hidden manna will be ours and that we will be given a new name. It's a promise of intimacy, of relationship, of connection, just a private name from Jesus and us. And the indication is it seems to stay that way. I don't know if anybody else is going to know our name, but it looks like this. And I just close with this. If you know him today, you have been born again by his work, not because of your work. For those of us who know him, I just want to remind you today, he knows your name. He knows our name. We are his. And so let's walk like conquerors, not giving in to the lies of the culture. Let's pray.